Influential podcast dedicated to the profession of pharmacy with over 80,000 listeners worldwide. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Pharmacists United for Truth and Transparency, the PuttCast. PUT is a not-for-profit industry watchdog organization dedicated to exposing the truth about the shady, abusive practices of pharmacy benefit managers and how they affect American patients, healthcare providers, and taxpayers. On the PuttCast, we'll talk to pharmacy industry experts, influencers, and patients, always with the goal of bringing the truth, transparency, and solutions to America's prescription drug affordability crisis. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Monique Whitney, Executive Director of PUT, and it is so good to be with you all again. I am excited about our guest, our guest panel this evening uh, with us is Dr. Benjamin Jolly, a pharmacy owner in Salt Lake City, Utah. Is that right, Ben? Make that right? Yeah. So slight correction. I don't own the pharmacy. I pretend like I do. <laughs> okay. My dad owns the pharmacy in Salt Lake. I just work for him. Salt Lake City is correct. Um, That's in Sugar okay. House area, if you want to be very precise about it. So. Okay, perfect. And then uh, for those of you who are listening, you you may also recognize Ben as the author of a blog, Ramblings of a Pharmacist. I'm curious, before we jump into our, our topic tonight, how did you come up with that, that title for your blog? <laughs> um, that blog actually started before I started publishing it. So sometimes I get an idea in my head and I can't sleep. Um, I think this happens to a lot of people. I know Scott said that he does that too. Yes. Um, and so when that happens, I just grab my computer and I start typing. And usually it just comes out as me rambling for like three pages or something. And anyway, so my blog, I decided that that would be a decent name for it because that meant that the bar for like what was an acceptable post was just like literally me rambling for three pages. And if someone wants to take that, great. If they, if they want to, uh, if they want to ex- expect something more, they can go to a different blog. <laughs> <laughs> so you set the bar low enough so that when people read it and they realize, oh, this is not actually, these are not ramblings. This is actually very intelligent, interesting stuff. They're wildly surprised and then they come back. Well, I didn't, I, I never like reorganize it into this really nicely done article. It's usually just, it usually comes out as a rambling, at least from my perspective. If you think that it's really well written, well, then thank you. Um, I just want the, the expectation for the production quality to be lower than like, I don't know, some fancy schmancy blog that actually posts on a weekly basis and has a higher production quality. So. Okay, very good. All right. So, and then of course we have our other panelists, our, our distinguished board member, Deborah Keveny. Deb, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you back. Thank you. So you have been doing your own work with the FTC Uh, I'm not sure how much or how little you'd like to share about that, but one of the reasons we were excited to have you be on our panel is to share a little bit about your own experiences in this great big world of antitrust and PBMs that have so thoroughly dominated the industry that we're now in the situation that we're in. Would you like to share a little bit about that? 
Well, sure. My involvement with the FTC started a couple of years ago when I discovered on the web page of the FTC that I could launch a complaint. And it was one of those days where I was very irritated by some of the things that PBMs were kind of pulling. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take my ire out and uh, get something done. So I wrote a letter on the FTC's complaint department. And lo and behold, about three days later, I got an email back and a phone call from those guys asking for additional information. There's been a pretty nice exchange the last few years. It started with uh, the Trump administration, of course, has rolled into the Biden administration of asking questions, asking for information. I feed them information, articles that I read, things like that, just trying to, to find a way to get them to understand exactly what's happening out there. And they're pretty cryptid. They, they don't tell you a lot about what they're looking at or what's happening to the information that you're sending them. But I am encouraged because it seems to me they're asking the right questions, they're asking for the right things, and I hope at some point it's going to lead somewhere. So I send them things every couple months when uh, a patient brings in a letter or I get a memo from the PBM that tells me I can't do something that I should legally be able to do. Um, I, I give it to them and sometimes they say thank you and that's it. And sometimes they say thank you and we have a few questions. It's really encouraging to hear you developing that relationship. And I imagine for anyone who's listening, that would give them some hope as well that you actually do have a recourse. And that's really kind of interesting because I've been talking to anybody that will listen to me for years. And it seems like you get discouraged and it kind of falls on deaf ears and you feel like nothing's happened. And then out of the blue, somebody will call you or email you and you think, wow, they were listening. Um, they did get my last 10 emails and this is for some reason, this one prompted a question. So I think we need to continue to share everything we possibly can shine the light on it as much as we can and understand that even though you're not getting a response or a direct question, or it seems like nothing is happening. I think they're listening. I think they're learning and I think we're getting somewhere. That's awesome. So uh, the reason that this panel has come together for this particular episode is probably have noticed that there's been more attention on the topic of, of antitrust issues. So we saw uh, not terribly long ago, we had the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, talking about the algorithms and the information that Facebook has. And, and it really it's escalated this conversation about big tech, which was already there to begin with, and the, the questions that are there, uh, issues of, of data privacy and safety and, and the kinds of things that actually resonate pretty well over here in our world uh, in pharmacy and, and the monster we deal with, which of course is the, the behemoth pharmacy benefit managers. Uh, but also, we've had a lot of other things happening since then. So as we're recording this yesterday, there was a hearing that featured uh, several people who have are outspoken on the topic of pharmacy benefit manager abuse. Uh, the Committee on Oversight and Reform had this hearing that was excellent, must-see TV in my opinion. We've also seen the, a judgment come out from the Eighth Circuit on the North Dakota case, which for many of us uh, was that next much needed victory uh, coming along. So so for us here tonight, as, as we're talking about this, the topic is antitrust. The topic is uh, like the life game of monopoly and what is happening in our industries. And Ben, you were talking about this not terribly long ago. You and I were at a conference in Louisiana where I think you addressed this topic. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, I was, I was at the LIPA board meeting and talked about 
antitrust and how I think that um, my my thesis, I guess, was that pharmacies and pharmacy owners in particular need to uh, give up their uniqueness, I guess, as we are uniquely abused by PBMs in exchange for joining a much bigger movement of people that are abused similarly by big companies in practically every industry, right? Like you see um, chicken farmers have Tyson Foods, we have Express Scripts. Um, you know, cattle ranchers have JBS, we have CVS, right? Um, and in general retail business, everyone has Amazon. Like if you wanna sell a widget, you probably sell it on Amazon. And a lot of pharmacy owners don't recognize, and a lot of pharmacists generally don't recognize the similarities between how PBMs treat pharmacies and how Amazon treats the sellers on its marketplace. And I made this point recently, but like when you'll get DIR fees, there is a plan this year that takes a DIR fee of between 29 and 31%, depending on your metrics. If you do perfect, you get they take 29%. If you do terrible, they take 31%. So like, is this really about performance or is this about finances? I'll give you one guess. Um, <laughs> um, but Amazon... On average, when someone wins the buy box on Amazon that says buy now, that person is generally paying Amazon about 30% of the sale. Mm -hmm. You look at Apple, if you want to sell an, an app into the app store for Apple, they generally charge you about 30% of sales. So all of these things are like, in my head, they're all the same problem, which is that big dominant middlemen, which is Amazon is at core in the marketplace setting, they're a middleman. And it's extremely analogous to a PBM because they put themselves in the middle of the transaction between buyer and seller, and then they take a cut. Same thing with Apple. They're a middleman in the app store because you want to sell an app to someone who uses an iPhone? Well, then you've got to go through Apple. And so they're able to take a cut. That to me is the um, is like the core defining characteristic of companies that have, in my view, violated the antitrust laws of the United States, is that they're able to impose a tax, basically, on the buyer and the seller. And in all three of these cases, it's about 30% of, of sales. Anyway, that's something to think about. <laughs> Deb, how did you first get interested in the topic of antitrust, uh, vertical integrations, this whole matter of PBM consolidation, or just antitrust in general? I think... It was more of a have to than it was an interest. Um, community pharmacists, pharmacy owners fight in their stores every day, not only for their survival, but many of us have our retirement in our stores. Uh, we have everything in our lives invested in our stores. And that puts in a position to where if people are harming us in some way, we're going to fight maybe a little harder than if you don't own a pharmacy, don't work in a small town, that kind of thing. And I had hit the point where I had had enough and I had to figure out another way to fight. And that was just getting on the FTC's website and launching that complaint was just another way to fight. So it's fascinating because 
you know, antitrust and, you know, the roots of this go back a long way. So I'm curious how you then uniquely got interested in this topic because you really, you're a subject matter expert in this area with regard to pharmacy. How, how did you get interested in this? How did you start going down this particular trail? So, um, I guess in some sense, you could say it's in my blood because my pharmacy was started by my grandfather, right? He started the pharmacy in 1955, which was like this golden age for independent pharmacy because there were basically no chains, there were no PBMs, everything was cash. And I, I have actually at the pharmacy this um, directory of all of the pharmacies in Salt Lake, and there's not a chain on there. And it's got all their phone numbers. It says free delivery. And it's actually, it's an amazing little piece of history that I love. Anyway, you say this goes back a long time before I was born. And I would very much agree with that. I've been reading a phenomenal book. And actually, I have it right here. Um, entitled Liberty from All Masters by Barry C. Lynn. So this book, the thesis that Barry Lynn has is that the United States, since its founding, has had um, an obsession with equality of opportunity, right? And a big part of ensuring that you have equality of opportunity is basically limiting the power of the largest and most powerful people in your society. And so he, he goes through and says, starting even in you know 1789, right after George Washington was elected president, the first act of Congress was the Northwest Ordinance. And reading about that was fascinating because I don't know if you know about the Northwest Ordinance or the Homestead Ordinance, mm -hmm. but I did not know this. They didn't teach me this in, in elementary school or in high school. In part, I feel like when I was in high school, the history that I was taught basically said that all of the people that said antitrust was a good idea was were like the bad guys. They were the evil populists. But like as I reread the history, I'm like, all of the things that I learned in high school were wrong. And <laughs> the villains are the good guys and the good guys are the villains in the version of history that I was taught in high school. Anyway, so the Northwest Ordinance is fascinating because so b before the founding of the US as an independent country, all of the various colonies were started by the king and he would say, here, you governor so-and-so have like 2 million acres of land, right? And then you can dole it out to your various subjects that come and live there. And so the U.S. was prior to the revolution was based around like a lot of these sort of feudal type of holdings like England was. But with the Northwest Ordinance, the revolutionary era um, founders um, were obsessed with trying to make sure that you had this equality of opportunity. And so in the Northwest Ordinance, um, the government had all this land in like Ohio and so forth, and they um, doled it out to the general public in tracts of no more than 160 acres. Any individual homesteader, any individual farmer that wanted to go buy some federal government land could not buy more than 160 acres from the government. And that was a very deliberate choice because they figured that 160 acres was about the amount of land that you would need to be able to be a self-sustaining person. You didn't need more than that um, to sustain yourself. 
And so if you had a whole bunch of people with all these small tracts of land, they could be good citizens of a democratic republic. And they were deliberately organized into townships as well so that you would be you would interact with your neighbors in a township that was the core of your community. And that concept is then tied also to the way that the townships were developed was generally you would have small business owner sized tracts of land in the town center so that, you know, you would have a small pharmacy rather than a Walmart. Anyway, th this goes back all the way to the founding that there was this obsession with tamping down the power of the biggest landowners, the biggest stock owners, the biggest banks and so forth. And reading about this, it, I mean, th this book is great. You should buy it. And read it it's, now. <laughs> it's really good. And then he goes through the history of the consolidation that happened with railroads and the original trust movement, which the root of the term antitrust is they were against the trust movement, which was a group of people like, you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie and Mellon. Their thesis was that the world would be better organized if we just merged all of the companies in, in one little industry and had one gigantic company that ran everything for the entire country. And that really didn't sit right with a lot of people. That's where our antitrust laws come from, is from a response to that's not the way things should be. That's interesting. You know, that, that actually, weirdly enough, that kind of brings us all the way back up to where we are today. You know, there's this economic engine, it's Wall Street or it's Main Street, but most people, you know, think they think it's Main Street, but then they're invested in Wall Street. I'm reminded of a conference that we were at back at the beginning of 2020, like right before the pandemic broke out. And there was a, a guy there that uh, one of our board members was talking to, and he was kind of obnoxious. He, he, his whole point was, well, I don't really care what these PBMs are doing. I'm making money off be investing in their, you know, companies. So as far as I'm concerned, go them, you know, it was, it was like that, that up front. And, and it was the first time that I, I considered that there actually are, there, there's a whole argument for keeping the system going because someone's profiting off it, not just Karen Lynch or Thomas Moriarty or whoever, whoever sits at the top of these major organizations. So we're, you know, we're, we're at a point now where there's so much, there's so many organizations uh, that are consolidated into these vertically integrated corporations. So I've been watching on and off the committee on oversight and reform, the hearing, and I am really encouraged because they've touched on every major pain point that we're dealing with. And and a big one is antitrust. So I've heard them talking about vertical integration. Someone mentioned, I think it was Antonio actually mentioned unwinding some of these uh, mergers that have happened. What do you think it means that this conversation is starting to happen now at the federal level after so long? I think it's encouraging. We've been doing this on a state level for a very long time. And it, it never seemed like we could get anyone's attention on the federal level. To, so to start seeing that, I think that's very encouraging. I hope that there's enough strength behind what is happening in the hearings and the information coming out that they will be compelled to act and to do something because they have to. 
I mean, it's destroying healthcare. Uh, we're as close to a single payer as we've ever been, even though there's three big players. Um, it, it's the same. You you know, take off a few letters and add a few letters, and you've got the same players there. So I'm very hopeful that something will happen, and something will happen soon. Yeah, me too. Me too. Well said. Thank you. So before we started recording, you and I were talking about alcohol and meat, uh, and of course the world that we we live in every day, which is this this world of of healthcare and these vertical integrations and and pharmacy benefit managers. So here we are, and now for the first time, I think ever, uh, we're starting to see these conversations happening at the federal level with, for example, this hearing. And I'm curious in your view, how do you think we got here? What do you think it means that we're having these conversations at that level now? So what I'm really excited about it, I, I am here for this, right? I'm so excited. So I think that I think that there was a sea change in 2016 um, and we're, we're starting to see the fruits of it today. Um, I mean, think back till, to like 2011, 10 years ago. And um, you probably heard about the Occupy Wall Street people, right? Oh yeah. I remember that. Okay. So at the wall, Occupy Wall Street, they had like a moment of silence when Steve Jobs died. It is really hard to imagine today the concept that this like anti-establishment group would mourn the death of like Elon Musk or like Jeff Bezos, right? The, the populist movement of people who are like, you know, maybe it's not a good, good thing that we have all these big companies. I would never imagine that such a group of people, like a similar group of people today would mourn the death of Jeff Bezos, right? But Steve Jobs was a very similar character. Like when you read, when you read through the like collusion between Google and Apple, they they signed non-compete agreements, non-poaching agreements between each other directly to suppress the wages of their employees. Like these were not good people that we should lionize. Right. They were deliberately trying to suppress the wages through illegal means like that is illegal collusion under multiple different laws, not least of which being the Sherman Act. Right. Or the Clayton Antitrust Act. It, it's fascinating, though, to think about Okay, 2011. The Occupy Wall Street people are thinking, wow, Steve Jobs was so great. We're going to have a moment of silence for him. And then. Barack Obama, as he was in office, people are like, what are you going to do next? And he's like, you know, I think I'll go like work for Facebook or for Google. And in his mind, Facebook and Google were like the peak of like progress and technology and they're the best thing ever and we should all want to work for them and they're the best companies ever. And then you had the election of Donald Trump. And since then there's just been this complete change in mentality and I don't know where it came from, but like people don't like these big companies anymore. Of course there are people who are going to apologize for Facebook and Google and Microsoft and, and PBMs like you mentioned, but, but mostly there are people that are really wealthy and invested in those companies. It's not like your Joe Schmo college student who thinks that, 
that Jeff Bezos is like the peak of who you should try to be, it's it's pretty apparent that these are not good people and we should not try to lionize them. And now with with the changeover from Donald Trump to Joe Biden, say what you about Joe Biden. I think that one thing that he has very much done right is appointing Lena Khan as chair of the Federal Trade Commission. That one appointment, I think, makes a world of difference. And similarly, Jonathan Cantor was confirmed as the antitrust chief at the Department of Justice. These changes in who is, um, who is in charge of the agencies that enforce antitrust, that's an enormous thing because Jonathan Cantor, Lena Khan, Tim Wu, who is the special um, advisor to the president on technology and economics, they all have completely different views of how the economy should be structured than the predecessors in either the Trump administration or the Obama administration. I mean, it's it's like night and day comparing the views of the Department of Justice Antitrust Division under Barack Obama to the Department of Justice under Joe Biden. It's like, yeah, we should totally let CBS and Caremark merge. That'll be a great thing. And we should totally, and under, under Trump, we should totally let CBS and Aetna merge. That's fine. Everything's great. Whereas now you've got the Department of Justice suing Google. You've got the Department of Justice suing Facebook. You've got them um, blocking mergers left and right. It's just a total sea change. And there's something in the politics of it, but also it's just like, I don't know, people woke up or something. I would say so. I, I would say it's like a, an awakening of people after after a long, long, long time of accepting a certain status quo. You know, so I remember, you know, when I first discovered Facebook, which was uh, a long, long, long time ago, <laughs> feels like forever ago. But at the time, just thinking like, wow, you know, this, this is amazing. And how could something like this ever be bad? And now here it is so many years later. And, and I, I've often said, well, I think it's just because I'm old and grumpy now. But, you know, in reality, I started seeing a long time ago, some of the issues that we see being discussed now at the much larger level with, with Facebook and, and with Google, you know, quite honestly. Uh, Deb, you were doing some work with, with I want to say the FTC, but it might have been the Department of Justice now, and I apologize that I'm, I'm messing that part up. But you were, you were doing that under the Trump administration, and then that continued under the Biden administration. Is that right? Yeah, it was through the FTC, and it did continue. And I still feed them information periodically. Um, they're, they're very good at accepting information, listening, asking questions, but it's very difficult to get a read on what they're doing with the information um, and exactly what they're looking for. It, it's almost like they're standoffish and thank you for contributing. And you ask questions and say, well, this is not really an ongoing investigation. We're in the gathering of information stages and we'll let you know if you, you need to help us out more. It's, it's all cryptid. <laughs> And I guess we would expect that from, from our federal government, right? We, we are all, I guess, as citizens on a need-to-know basis until, I guess, we need to know what's happening there. So as we, as we talk about 
the great power that PBMs have amassed, uh, a good a good segue into our next topic is this. It's, so uh, I was in a stakeholder meeting two days ago with the American Legislative Exchange Council. PUT sits on the Health and Human Services Committee. And we've been working on getting model language passed that specifically prohibits a series of truly bad practices that PBMs engage in. And we've shared about that from time to time on this, on this podcast. We, uh, we're moving it along to the next stage. And a new stakeholder member joined our meeting and was asking this question, which was, is it not true that PBMs could simply design plans that would take care of all of the concerns that are in this policy? And the concerns that are in this policy are all things that I think everybody knows by now, gag clauses, fees that are charged to pharmacies on the front end and the back end that pharmacies don't know anything about, patient steering, predatory audits, th things like that, all the things that, that we've all come to know about and we've heard in the news. And so he's asking this question, well, why can't they just design plans that will avoid that? And the answer was they can, they just don't. And the reason that we're even here talking about this at a group whose whole thing is less regulation, less government, not more regulation, was this protection of the free market. And even, even the legislators that are sitting on this uh, committee recognize the need to protect the free market. So it's a long way of saying that we've come to a point, I think, in our country where we realize that if it keeps going the way it's going, we're not going to have a free market. We're going to have a small number of very, very large players who erect barriers to entry and make it impossible for anyone to step in and compete in any meaningful way. I have some thoughts about that. Yeah, please. So first off, do you know the origin of the term free market? I thought it was from Adam Smith, but perhaps I am wrong. <laughs> Correct, yes. But when... When Adam Smith talks about the free market, he means, when he says free, he means free from economic rents and free from rentier behavior, not free from any regulation of any sort. There's, there's no such thing as an unregulated market. There are regulations by someone at some point in every market, whether that's the government or whether that's CBS imposing rules on pharmacies, there are going to be regulations. The question is whether those regulations are structured in the public interest or in the interest of a monopolist, in my view. And when we talk about this, like structuring a free market, we're not talking about a market where any company can do anything ever. We're talking about a market where you restrict the power of large entities and people without moral compunction from just extracting all of the money from the system. It's not, it's not per se just no, no regulations. That was a change in ideology that was promoted by Robert Bork and Aaron Director in the 70s and 80s. And it's become so entrenched into the way that we think that their ideology has just become part of the way that the world is structured, that we forget that when when Adam Smith's talking about a free market, he's not talking about no government regulation. He's talking about no government granted monopolies. Because in his context, and in the context of the founding fathers, right? He, he wrote his book in 1776. 
people don't often connect that, oh, that's the same time as the Declaration of Independence. Like right. <laughs> they had read that book and then they wrote the Declaration of Independence like the next month. But in their context, it's like, okay, the government was giving a monopoly to the East India Trading Company. And when he talks about a free market, he's not talking about freedom for the East India Trading Company to do whatever they want, wherever they want, but freedom for the small business person and freedom for the citizens to participate in the market. And that understanding of where that term comes from is, in my view, really important because when we're talking about regulating PBMs and setting these ground rules, we're trying to create a free market, right? One where you can participate as either a patient or as a pharmacist, a pharmacy owner, without fear that a monopolist, in the case of, say, CVS, is going to say, you have to use my pharmacy. You have to do these things. I am in charge. You do what I say. That's not, that's not a free market anymore. It's, it's a market that's controlled by a monopolist. It's really brilliant. And I'm so glad that you took a moment to, to break that down for all of us who are here and also for everyone who is listening. I, I, I wish so much that you'd been there in that meeting to have that conversation with the person who kept bringing this up to us that um, everything that we were talking about is inconsistent with their their philosophy of uh, less government, states' rights, and and the principles of the free market. Thank you for that. So so having said all that, I'm kind of curious then, we have Lena Khan, we have conversations now happening at the federal level. There seems to be some recognition of PBMs having way too much power and profiting just way, way over and above anyone else in the supply chain. What do you think should happen? Like what, what advice would you have for the government or for the, the people who are now engaged in the investigation? It's a good question. I would start from the thesis that the merger of CVS and Caremark and the merger of CVS and Aetna and the merger of Express Scripts and Cigna and all, all of these mergers that happened over the last 10 years in the PBM market and in the pharmacy market were in my view, violations per se of the antitrust statute. They are deliberate formations of vertical monopolies and they should be unwound. And I think that if we can force the unwinding of those mergers, that doesn't solve all the problems, right? You still need other rules. Like the, the FTC put out a, an ask for unfair methods of competition specifically contract language of what kind of contracts are in the market that are un, that like embed in them unfair methods of competition. And I think rulemaking for unfair methods of competition, for example, saying that in the PBM market, just as a, for example, um, steering per se is probably an unfair method of competition. And like the structure of the contract between a pharmacy and a PBM, if you read through any of these contracts, no sane person would ever sign these contracts without duress. I have read them and I have asked for red lines from multiple PBMs and they always say no. They might come back and say, oh, sure, yeah, we'll give you 2% of AWP back. But the like structural terms of the contract of what 
dictates the relationship between the pharmacy and the PBM, who owns the data, who can sue who, is there arbitration or can you sue in a class action suit? All of these contracts are very much tilted towards the favor of the PBM and the pharmacy has practically no rights. I mean, just as a, for example, one particular contract from a PBM who shall remain nameless because I don't want to get sued myself says that under no circumstance shall the PBM be held liable for special damages or punitive damages or for loss of revenue or loss of customers of the pharmacy, even if PBM is informed beforehand that such could happen from their actions. And that means that basically, if you sign that and a court upholds that that is a valid contractual statement, then these letters that you know we've been seeing uh, saying, oh, your pharmacy's out of network that are false, like WellCare's been sending these letters and Express Scripts has been sending these letters saying your pharmacy's out of network, even though the pharmacy has signed the agreement that said they're in network, they're still sending out these letters saying your, your pharmacy's out of network, you're going to have to switch pharmacies. That is a loss of customers and a loss of revenue. They can't be held liable for that under the contract. It's, it's in there in black and white. In a scenario where these were actually you know, contracts that were negotiated between equal parties, under what scenario would anyone ever agree to that or another another part says um, that, let's see, assignment to the contract that says, neither party can assign this contract without the consent of the other, provided except that the PBM can assign it to successors or purchasers or basically not, no one can assign this contract to another person except the PBM, and we can do that whenever we want, right? No one would ever accept that the terms of these agreements if these were actually between equal partners, but they're not. It's between someone who doesn't need you and you, yeah. right? So it's either take it or leave it. So this would be a good time to, to have, Deb, have you share a little bit about your own contracting experience, which we've talked about from time to time, uh, being a pharmacy owner in a rural area and on occasion having had to you know, contract on your own. I think you've done that a couple of times. It's, it's not been as successful as you'd hoped, as I recall, but definitely correct me. No, it, it used to be easier to, I want to say bargain with the PBMs because I am in a rural area. They need me more than I need them. I guess you could say outside of my patients are bent on using their insurance no matter what. So in a sense, I do need the PBM in order to have access to my patients, which is ridiculous, but that's the way it is. Um, they've gotten pretty brazen right now to where you can ask for a different rate. You can ask for different terms. And the response back is just no. In fact, the response back and accepting a, a contract, and again, the PBM shall remain nameless, is if you do not accept this contract the way it is written in its entirety, we will not only drop you from this or not let you in this network, but we will drop you from all networks with this PBM. So now when you're looking at the big three, if you let one of them go, that's, in, you know, in many cases, that's a third of my business. And I'm, a, I'm in a small town at 2300. So, you know, a third of my business walks out the door. That's going to be awfully hard for me to keep the lights on, the people here and taking care of the rest of the town. So we don't have any choice. And we've spent a lot of time 
trying to get laws passed and regulations on a state level type thing. And what we keep running into is the process to get these legislation and regulations in place is so slow that by the time it finally makes it to the rules committees to finally figure out a way to enforce it, if it's ever enforced or ever makes it to rules committee, the PBM has already pivoted. They have already changed what they call things. They've already changed their nomenclature. They've already changed their their practices and the law that you spent two or three years fighting to get through all the steps is no longer valid. It's worthless. When I first started working in this world with Hutt, I remember so often hearing these stories and thinking, this can't be legal. This can't be right. Surely I'm misunderstanding or even worse, surely you're misunderstanding. And I was reflecting on that today when I was watching. So I'm always late to the party. I was watching yesterday's oversight committee hearing today and watching some of these representatives uh, who are clearly knowledgeable. They've clearly spent time talking with their constituents. They understand the problems and, and watching them ask these deliberate questions about the contracts, about the, uh, the nature of a business arrangement that would render one party so thoroughly, not helpless, but so powerless that you really subservient, are. maybe? So what's that? I was going to suggest the word subservient. Subservient, yes, yes, yes. And it's becoming clearer and clearer. You know, the, the panel who's testifying about these practices as a multidisciplinary panel, up to and including a pharmacy owner testifying for PCMA and how it's not you guys, or it's not them, it's you guys who have the problem. But it's a it's a multidisciplinary panel. There's Dr. Madeline Feldman, a rheumatologist. There's Ted Oaken from the Community Oncology Alliance. Literally in the middle is Antonio Chacha from 46 Brooklyn and Three Axis Advisors. You know, it, it, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch. You know, there's a pharmacy owner, uh, I want to say he's from Kentucky, and Jonathan Greider, I believe his name is, and and, and he's, you know, they're, they're talking about these consistent abuses and discipline to discipline to discipline, it's exactly the same. These, the DIR fees, the rebates, the step therapy, the, the audits, the, you know, all of it. And, and it's just interesting to see that happen because I think it speaks to what people are now getting fed up with, which is that if you don't specifically put a rule in place to prevent this terrible thing from happening that will be exploitive, if you don't do that, then it will happen. And I think I, my own theory is that we're becoming more and more savvy as we go along as consumers about all of it, and we're getting tired of it. We're tired of watching the family farms close, tired of watching the community pharmacies close, just tired of it. You know, and, and the time is coming where we're not going to put up with it anymore. And, you know, maybe that's just my optimism having come so far in five years from, are you sure this is really happening to, you know, sometimes having to check myself to think like, do I sound like a conspiracy theorist? I know this is happening. I've seen the letters. I've seen the letters WellCare is sending out. I, I got one yesterday here at the PUT office. For those of you listening, if you're getting uh, patient steering letters, send those to PUT. We need those project. We're working There's a little on. website that says the evidence upload, go there. <laughs> it's awesome. Yes, yes, we keep that evidence locker full. We we submitted, we even submitted a proposal 
for what to do about this to the Trump administration. And it was two pages of bullet point proposal and a dozen or more pages of pure examples, pure evidence, everything that we'd seen from our members. And, you know, we're not the only ones presenting that evidence. There are a lot of organizations out there right now working to, uh, to try to turn this around. But we are here. We are here where we are now. This conversation is happening at the federal level. And we've had some good news. The Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals brought forward its judgment, and it did not agree with PCMA as it did the first time. Either of you had a chance to read that or you have comments on that? I haven't had a chance to read through it in its entirety, but I read the beginning and the end. Um, And in, in short, the, the appeals court did not find for PCMA that the North Dakota law was either preempted by ERISA or by Medicare Modernization Act of 2003, which is, frankly, that's really exciting, too, because, you know, before Rutledge, it was like every single law that anyone ever passed about PBMs, it was like, yeah, ERISA, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't pass that law because ERISA. No, you can't pass that law because Medicare. Now they're saying, no, um, actually, you can. States can enforce laws that say that you can't do these things. And your interpretation of ERISA is I can do whatever I want and states can't stop me. And that's not how ERISA works. That's not what ERISA is about. That's not what Medicare Part D is about. You still have to be a fair market player in the world. It's it's just a breath of fresh air, honestly. Before Rutledge, it was just like, okay, they passed this law, great. And a year later, the court said, nope, ERISA, nope, you can't do that so frustrating but it's so exciting now to see this string of losses by pcma mm-hmm. <laughs> it is it is you know it, it it is and very excited that things are moving in our direction we are on the side of right i say that as a patient by now anyone who ever listens to this podcast hears me say at least once during the podcast that i'm not a pharmacist but i am a patient and the for patients this matters this is a big deal even though it's sometimes hard to understand. I, I jokingly say that I'm, you know, saving the world one Uber driver at a time because they'll say, what do you do? You know, and I'm like, well, let me tell you what I do. <laughs> Next thing you know, you know, we're having a conversation about if they take nothing else from this, there's a certain very large pharmacy chain they should stay away from. On that, on that topic, uh, so you saw the news that CVS is closing 10% of its stores. That was a bit of a surprise. I will say so. Yeah, that that was not exciting. Um, it's depressing, honestly, um, because their their statement about it is all corporate speak that says that they're trying to fix the world and it makes more sense to have less pharmacies and blah, blah, blah. What they mean is we bought all the pharmacies in these markets and we've decided that 900 pharmacies don't need to exist anymore because we can just abuse the pharmacists in the neighboring pharmacies that we own. So we don't need as many pharmacies So we're going to fire all of the staff at these pharmacies. We're going to close these down. And now you patient have to go to the pharmacies that I tell you to, which are going to be instead of having like four pharmacies in a square mile or five square miles, we're just going to have one and tough deal with it. Right. Which man, if I had the ability to just say, yeah, you have to use these pharmacies. Like it's fascinating to just imagine the power that Karen Lynch has, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. No person should have that kind of power to dictate to a community, to 900 communities that, yeah, you're going to only have one pharmacy now instead of like three or four. And you're going to deal with the fact that we're going to staff our pharmacies with like one person to fill a thousand prescriptions a day. No one should have that kind of power. Yeah, agreed. I, I'm reflecting on now as you're saying that. I remember when CVS made a, an announcement under Larry Merlo about expanding their minute care clinics and the things they were going to be doing. And he talked about this, you know, channels for these omni care channels. And it sounded really ominous. Like you, you know, you walk into a CVS and they're going to make it so that everything can be handled right there in their store, you know, so forget the doctor, forget whoever else you're working with. It'll just be handled right there in the store. I don't know if anyone's any of you have ever been around or seen these minute clinics, but the ones that I've seen, you know, here in the Phoenix area are, they're a little like a Walmart dressing room, but you're going in there to get your health care, And it just somehow has, it doesn't feel right. You know, and again, I'm, you know, saying I'm a healthcare snob, but when I go to my doctor and I'm in the examination room, I prefer it to be a room with a door, you know, not something that if someone felt like it, they could run at it and tip it over, you know. CBS also said that they're going to expand the number of these health hubs that they have, which is like the minute clinic plus like probably an actual doctor in there instead of a nurse practitioner, which no offense to nurse practitioners, but like there are times when physicians are necessary parts of care. But the concept of like CVS controlling your physician and your nurse practitioner and your ophthalmologist and your pharmacy is to me a little bit, um, they're going to say that it's going to save the healthcare system all this money because, you know, we're going to do it all in house instead of going out to clinics and at hospitals that are also monopolies and have enormous pricing power. We're going to do it all in house. But like, are they really going to save money for? you and my premium or are they going to save money for shareholders in CVS health? And I think we know the answer to that question. Don't you think the actual consumers or patients though are going to get tired of going to this one place that's supposed to take care of everything and there's one pharmacist, one technician, one clerk, and it's going to take six and a half hours to get the one prescription? I mean, I would think that there's going to be a lot of pushback the worse the the services and, and, and the they can't get done there. I mean, there has been pushback, right? Like people, people keep like, I don't know about you, but ever since this pizza's not working thing started and the great resignation where we just have people quitting all over the place. And suddenly there are, you know, there's just a random CVS closed in town every day. You can never guess which one it's going to be, but like, there's going to be in any given city, like there might be four or five CVSs and at least one of them is going to be closed today because the district doesn't just doesn't have the staff anymore to be able to staff all the pharmacies. So they just move people from store to store to store to store to store. There has been some, and I've been getting a fair number of transfers at our pharmacy. And I think that a lot of other independents have been seeing folks transfer out of these pharmacies because people are just like, this is dumb. I'm waiting how, how long to get my prescription. And there's one pharmacist. So like it's a single file line that goes out to the exit. Like, I fill your prescription and then I fill your prescription and then I fill your prescription and that's all it is. Like, I think people are tired of it, but I also have a uh, theory of why CVS is doing this. Cause one part of the reason why they're having this is that they just keep abusing their staff with more and more and more work and less and less and less hours. 
also they're cutting pay dramatically. I mean, your typical CVS is now hiring like $35, $38 an hour. And they'll throw a sign-on bonus if you work for them for three years. But like it's still the pharmacist is making like half as much as they did or a third less than they did two years ago. I think my theory, though, getting back to that, is that they want to convince state boards that it's okay to do telepharmacy for all of these pharmacies. And they just want to have one pharmacist managing the entire district and run the rest of them as telepharmacies with just technicians inside. And so they're they're deliberately cutting service levels so that they can have evidence for the boards of pharmacy that, oh, we can't hire any staff. So we need to run all of these as telepharmacies because like it's a harm to the public to not have these pharmacies open. But since we can't hire any pharmacists because no one wants to work for us anymore, you should let us run them as telepharmacies without a pharmacist at all. That's my theory of what of what is going in the minds of the top brass at CVS and Walgreens who are all seeing the same pharmacies just randomly being closed. They could probably resolve this by increasing staffing and increasing hourly wages for their staff. They could hire enough people, but they're choosing not to partly because they just want to keep wages low, but partly because I think that they want to, to cut even further by cutting pharmacists entirely out of their stores. Maybe they're just like really out of touch One of my friends was telling me about how she saw a sign on a Walgreens that said they're hiring pharmacy techs and they had a $1,200 sign on bonus if the pharmacy tech, you know, works there. And she's like, but that's only a hundred dollars a month. And the way things are priced right now, that's not going to buy very much. It's going to buy maybe a basket of groceries or two a month. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) $1,200 sounds like so much. And then when you break it down, you're like, oh, it's not that much money. At the same time, you're seeing like a McDonald's is hiring at like $15 an hour, right? So like, why would you go work for CVS, which is the super high stress job for like $14 an hour when you can go work at McDonald's for 15 an hour or maybe even more, um, depending on the market you're in. I've heard, I've heard it said that we're in an unofficial general strike just across the entire economy that people have just decided, you know, you know what, screw all of these big companies and their crappy wages, we're just going to no one go to work at all. And it's not like it's an organized strike by AFL-CIO or something, but it sure feels that way when you look out at the staffing issues that like every single big company has now, and it's working. (laughs) Deb, in your part of the world, uh, you're in a really interesting part of the world. What are you seeing? Uh, we're seeing the same thing. Um, we've got, you know, larger towns around us and they're all offering bonuses and they're all, you know, you, it's help wanted signs all over the place. And it just goes to show that, you know, bigger isn't better because they still can't staff their stores. So the wages and the bonuses aren't appealing enough to people to get them to work. We've got, you know, big unemployment in our area too. And people just aren't enticed to want to work. Um, we're fortunate enough in our store that we are fully staffed and we are able to pull people in and take care of our patients. And we're very grateful for that, but many businesses are not. And that's a real interesting theory that this is an unofficial strike. I actually kind of like that theory. I wish it'd have a bigger impact so that, um, something will change. I just don't know what can change. It's, it's kind of this concept of this general strike happening right now is, 
I guess let me let me let me go a step further with that. I think that pharmacies should go on strike sometime next month, maybe. I have heard that there is a group of like Walgreens and CVS people who are planning on just not showing up to work on December 20th just to make a point to their management. And I think that the independent pharmacies should go in solidarity with that. And I, I remember hearing like 20 years ago, the independent pharmacies, at least in my area, had a blackout day where they like put up black drapes on all the windows and turned the lights off. They kept operating the pharmacy, but they put up all these black drapes so that it was dark in the pharmacy. And then they, they handed out all of this stuff about like, look, if reimbursements go the way they're going, we're not going to be here next year or the year after. And like thinking about where pharmacy was at 20 years ago and today, it's like, okay, that, that just sounds super entitled. <laughs> that like the reimbursements in 2001 were not adequate to keep working. It's like, yeah, and 20 years later, here we are. And um, reimbursements are like, dramatically lower than they were then but like i think that we should do that again we should have a blackout day in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who work in these big chains and are getting abused and also to you know make the point ourselves that frankly we are going to be closed if this keep if this keeps up there are what 700 counties now that 10 years ago had a pharmacy and don't anymore because of the reimbursement abuses so Anyway, December twentieth. I don't know. We should uh, we should make it a thing. Um, blackout day. Put up black drapes in your pharmacy and hand out hand out something about I don't know. Call your senator and say PBMs are bad. I don't know. I leave the organizing to someone that's not me. <laughs> You're the idea because I don't know how guy. to make this work. Your guy and and yeah, that, that's that's really interesting. Um, the the one thing for sure is that when people are sick, they want their medicine. And I know you know that better than anybody. You know, you guys work that counter when people come in and they need you, they need you. And so I don't think it's really the patients that we, in the end, are going to have to convince. I think the patients are as much on our side as we are on their side. I think at the end of the day, it's going to be the state and federal governments. It's going to be Wall Street. It's going to be the employers. And I think this is a good place for us to as we come to the end of our podcast time to engage in a question. So whenever we have guests on, which of course we do every single podcast, because that's what we do. I ask a question. And I think the question that I would love you to answer each of you is the question of what do you most want the government to know or understand or take on as a solution to the problem that we're facing with PBMs, giant insurers, third-party administrators, whatever you call the middlemen, what is the, what is the thing they most need to know? Uh, ben, why don't we start with you? Okay, so I'm just going to go with a concrete thing that they could do that would solve at least, at least a piece of the crisis that our industry is frankly in, which is NCPA is suing the Health and Human Services over the definition of negotiated price. That definition of negotiated price is where DIR fees come from. That's the like, I guess you could call it the source code for where all of this comes from. That loophole that says that you can you can charge a fee if it's not estimatable at the point of sale 
needs to die because if we get rid of that, then DIR fees go away. Yes, reimbursements will probably just go down in tandem, but if we kill DIR fees, then at minimum, pharmacies will know that they're getting killed at the point of sale. And also the Part D plans will not be able to inflate the cost of drugs to the government and to the patient by 20%. I mean, that's that's basically what's happening with the IR fees is you see all of these things inflated by 20% and then they just take it all back. And so they're able to goose their own margins by screwing the pharmacy and the patient and the government. So just close that that stupid loophole in the negotiated price definition. It's dumb and it shouldn't be a thing. Brilliant. I think that's an excellent solution. Deb, what about you? I agree with Ben. Um, I would also look at the terms of the contracts that we are forced in air quotes to sign. I mean, several of them put us underwater per claim wise before we even get to the DIR fees, the transmission fees and things like that. And we've argued in the state of Minnesota that there are laws on the books that should prevent that from happening. However, they don't see it as a pharmacy issue. They see it more as that law was put in place for tobacco, firearms, alcohol, gasoline, that kind of thing, and really not drugs. So getting the legislatures and regulators to kind of shift their thought process a little bit that just because it's drugs doesn't mean that it doesn't fit into some of the laws that are already on the books. So I think there's been a lot of good legislation that's been written. I think there's a lot of good legislation that we can use. The problem is getting people to understand how to use it, to actually use it, and to stand up for us to help us. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Excellent solutions, both of you. Thank you. So I think with that, we are ready to close out this edition of the podcast. Dr. Benjamin Jolly, Deborah Keveny, thank you both so much for being with us and for having a conversation really on a range of topics. We started on antitrust, but we have covered so much ground and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you both. You're very welcome. Thanks. And to everyone who's listening, thank you for joining us. If you'd like more information on the book that Ben recommended, Liberty from All Masters by Barry C. Lynn, please check our notes and you can find more information about that and to read Ben's blog, Ramblings of a Pharmacist. Also check our notes and you can learn more about his work or read his work there. Thank you all for joining us and we will see you on the next podcast.